I can say with great confidence that God works in mysterious ways. Amen. And I can say so be on, the, on the testimony of several of you last week. As you came to me and spoke to me about the message, remembering one primary thing, which was the demonic I left with you, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. But I'll take that. Praise be to God. So if you have your copy of the Word, open it with me, if you will. And we'll be reading from chapter 2 of the epistle to the Galatians, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 10. Here now. The Word of God. Then fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, They gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the brethren, and they unto the circumcision. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for the truth it reveals, for the stories of our fathers it tells, and for the patterns, precepts, and principles it teaches that we may come to know we have life and hope and who you are and that you sent Christ to accomplish the redemption of your chosen people. For we know that apart from his perfect obedience, the obedience unto death, even the death of the cross and his resurrection and ascension, we are a people most to be pitied for we can in no way keep the just requirements of your holy law. We are thankful that as we have placed our faith in Christ as Lord, we live our lives not as those who are lost and alone, but as those who have been found and have been given the comfort and power of the Holy Spirit. We pray there for your your Holy Spirit to attend to the preaching and hearing of the Word this morning, helping us in our weakness and bringing application and understanding according to your good pleasure. In this we pray in the mighty name of of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. It is quite a blessing to be a member in this particular little church. I was feeling really strong this morning, have been throughout most of it, and then I come into our prayer service, 
and I see the love of the brethren, I feel it, and, um, and then we sing Psalm 92, as we do every week at the opening of our prayer service, and, and, it, and we sing, and when they're old, they will flourish fresh and green. And I thought about my mother-in-law, and how up until the end, she flourished fresh and green in the gospel. She really was characterized by love. As she got older and the aches and pains of her life filled her body, she smiled. And when her hearing was gone and she couldn't track with the conversations around her, she smiled. And as she got news of the cancer, she smiled and said, I'm ready. And so I am thankful that she was not in bondage to bitterness. She was not in bondage to fear but she knew true liberty in Christ, which is our topic this morning. And so, we'll now continue our journey through Galatians. And once again, I'll quote from one of our spiritual fathers, both to get our bearings and also to be reminded that we are not Lone Ranger Christians, but rather we are situated in the stream of a long line of faithful, standing on the shoulders of others, and desiring to be faithful along with them to this generation and in the generations to come. In his commentary on Galatians regarding the text under consideration today, Martin Luther wrote, Now the true gospel has it that we are justified by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. The false gospel has it that we are justified by faith, but not without the deeds of the law. The false apostle preached, a conditional gospel. So do the papists. They admit that faith is the foundation of salvation, but they add the conditional clause that faith can save only when it is furnished with good works. This is wrong. The true gospel declares that good works are the embellishment of faith, but that faith itself is the gift and work of God in our hearts. Faith is able to justify because it apprehends Christ the Redeemer. Human reason can think only in terms of the law. It mumbles, this I have done, this I have not done. But faith looks unto Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given into death for the sins of the whole world. To turn one's eyes away from Jesus means to turn them to the law. True faith lays hold of Christ and leans on Him alone. Our opponents cannot understand this. In their blindness, they cast away the precious pearl, Christ, and hang on to their stubborn works. They have no idea what faith is, end quote. True faith lays hold of Christ and leans on Him alone. This is the faith that justifies and the faith we are to live by every single day. It seems so simple. Why then do we find it so hard to believe and so hard to apply? We would rather, it seems, stubbornly hang on to our works than to simply trust in Christ. And to make matters worse, there always seems to be an ample supply of those who are eager to capitalize on our natural impulse to works righteousness and lead us into bondage under the law. And even when we aren't subject to external temptations such as these, there 
there is within us this natural desire to try and earn our own righteousness. Freedom in Christ was the Apostle's concern as he wrote the, the Galatian church a letter which has been referred to as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Paul knew how precious spiritual liberty and freedom are. He knew the price that Jesus paid on the cross to gain it. He also knew how easy it is to squander that freedom and return to spiritual bondage. As we consider these first ten verses in the second chapter of Galatians, I would like for us to take a look at what is recorded for us here from two different perspectives. First, we will look at the events mentioned and attempt to place them in their historical setting so that we can better understand them in relation to other passages in Scripture. Secondly, we will consider the practical matters contained in the passage and bring application to our understanding, the goal being to more fully understand and comprehend the freeing truth of our liberty in Christ. First, the historical context. Here at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul continues his autobiographical defense of his apostleship. While we know that Paul is the author of this epistle, we also confess that this letter to the Galatians is inspired by the Holy Spirit and as such is true and trustworthy and without error. This does not mean, however, that all is perfectly clear from our vantage point in history. And such is the case with the details of this account of Paul's spiritual autobiography. The primary question we have is, how do the details of this account in Galatians match up with Luke's account in the book of Acts? New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett calls this question the most celebrated and complicated historical problem of the whole epistle, perhaps in the whole of the New Testament. Acts records for us at least four visits that Paul made to Jerusalem. The first trip occurs in the third year after his Damascus Road conversion, which connects Acts 9 with Galatians 1, verses 18 and 19, which we covered last week. We find his second trip at the end of Acts 11, where he and Barnabas are sent with a gift for the poor to help relieve the suffering associated with the severe famine there. On his third trip, Paul went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and others for what we commonly refer to as the Jerusalem Council, which we find in Acts 15. It was at this council that the apostles and elders officially declared that the Gentiles were welcome in the church without the burden of circumcision. And just to refresh our memories from Scripture about this event, beginning there at verse 5 in Acts 15, we read, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we 
were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. To provide a contemporary paraphrase of the text in Acts 15, some of the believing Pharisees make a motion that the Gentiles, converts, must be circumcised to keep the law of Mo- and keep the law of Moses in order to be brought into the church. The motion having been made and seconded, an extended period of discussion ensues and Peter rises to speak against the motion and does so convincingly. Later in the text, we read that Paul and Barnabas give testimony of the miracles and wonders that God had wrought among the Gentiles. There is no record of the motion having been withdrawn, but Peter makes a new motion that there be no requirement for circumcision or keeping of the law of Moses, and no greater burden be placed upon them than to abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from fornication, indicating that if they keep themselves from these things, they would do well. That motion is passed, and so with one accord and much rejoicing and consolation, they conclude the meeting of the Jerusalem Presbytery and send this declaration by way of Paul and Barnabas and also Judas and Silas. And so that brings us to Paul's fourth trip to Jerusalem, which we find record of in Acts 21 through 28. On this trip, Paul is arrested and sent to Rome, and as such, it proves to be his last. And so we turn again to our text this morning in Galatians 2, beginning at verse 1. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain." Paul indicates here that he went up to Jerusalem again after 14 years, taking with him Barnabas and Titus. Assuming that the 14 years means 14 years after his conversion, this means that he is referring to a trip that he took approximately 11 years or so after his first trip to visit Peter. The trip is in response to divine revelation and not in response to an apostolic summons. But while they were there... The visit included a private discussion regarding their preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. As we consider this text, some of the details match Luke's description of the meeting of the Jerusalem Council we read in Acts 15. You have some of the same participants mentioned. Paul and Barnabas present their gospel to the other apostles. The same topic was part of the discussion, whether or not Gentiles were required to be circumcised in order to be accepted into the church. And the meeting had the same basic result. Paul's message of grace for the Gentiles was confirmed. But if we look closely, we do find differences in the account. Galatians says that the meeting took place in private. But Acts presents the Jerusalem Council as more of a public event, including the whole church and the apostles and the elders. Galatians says that Paul was sent in response to Revelation, but Acts records that he was part of an official delegation from the church in Antioch. And we read about that in Acts 15.2. And then there is the issue that if the events in Galatians 2 and Acts 15 correspond to one another, then we would need to note that Paul has omitted from this account the trip that he made to Jerusalem recorded in Acts 11. Since the thrust of Paul's biographical account here is to show that he didn't get his gospel from 
other apostles, then this omission could be seen as misleading. Now, I'm sure there are many, uh, many ways to, to make and reconcile uh, Galatians 2 and Acts 15, uh, correlate to one another and, and address those apparent discrepancies, but what if we take the account in Acts 11 as corresponding to our text from Galatians? The text from Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 27 to the end, reads, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it by the elders, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. As we see here, though there is no mention of Titus, Paul did make the trip with Barnabas. He did so in response to a revelation from Agabus. And the purpose of the trip was to help the poor, which corresponds well to verse 10 from Galatians 2. Only they would, we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. And finally, the question needs to be asked, if Paul was referring to the trip in Jerusalem, to Jerusalem in Acts 15, why does he not simply provide the Judaizers with the decision from the Jerusalem council? That would have ended the discussion right there and then. All things considered, it seems likely to me that Galatians 2 is referring to Paul's second visit to Jerusalem and not to his trip to the Jerusalem council. Given that assumption, we can put together a brief sketch of an historical outline of Paul's conversion and ministry up to the writing of this letter to the Galatians. First, Paul is converted on the Damascus Road shortly after the resurrection of Christ. He then spends up to three years in the region around Damascus. After this, he makes a short trip to get acquainted with the Apostle Peter, as we see in Galatians 1, 18 through 19. Paul doesn't return to Jerusalem until some 11 years later, the purpose of which was to provide famine relief. While there, however, he consults privately with the other apostles about his gospel for the Gentiles. Not long after that, he embarks on his first missionary journey, during which he plants the churches in the southern region of Galatia. We read about that in Acts 13 and 14. And all during this time, Judaizers continue to try and exercise influence in the church, resulting in an official meeting of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem recorded in Acts 15. And sometime before that would mean that this letter to the Galatians was written by Paul. I often feel deficient in my understanding of the historical sweep and setting of the narratives that I read in Scripture, and that's probably why I felt compelled this morning to share that information to you in the message. Having done that, I come to the second and final part of the message today, which is to focus on the central verse in this passage, in this passage verses 4 and 5 in particular, and try to point us all to a greater embrace of the truth of the gospel, which leads not to bondage, but to perfect liberty in Christ. For when the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free, we are free indeed. So let us turn then to verses 3 through 5. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, and that because of false brethren's unawares brought in, 
who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. False brethren who slip in to spy out our liberty in Christ so that they might bring us into bondage. This is what happens when we allow any foothold to either a deficient gospel or a gospel plus something else. And by the way, the false brethren that slip in unawares don't always come in the form of Judaizers. They can be teachers of any false doctrine. They can be our false brethren that might, our false brethren might be the traditions that we were raised with and that go back generations. False brethren might include an influential atheist teacher in school or a book we read or a, or a movie we've seen or a well-meaning friend who sought to provide comfort in a time we were most vulnerable but did so apart from gospel truth. False brethren can be any sort of philosophy or psychology that deny the nature of sin, the depth of our depravity, and our utter need for a Savior. But these false brethren are particularly pernicious when they come into the church and seek to undermine the gospel, just as the Judaizers were doing in the Galatian churches. But whether the promoters of a false gospel come from within or without the church, the result is always the same, bondage and slavery, and undermining of the liberty we have in Christ and heaping up burdens we can never bear upon our spiritual backs. As Paul pulls the apostles aside to share the testimony of the Lord working among the Gentiles, his main concern is the gospel not the notoriety of the apostles or the influence they could bring. He is absolutely confident that the gospel he had received was the gospel he was preaching. And so we read, picking up again at verse 6, But of those who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. And after Paul has his private conference with James and Peter and John, it is evident to, to these pillars of the church that Paul had indeed been given an apostleship to the Gentiles. Gospel grace was being poured out through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas, and Titus accompanied them as a living, visible testimony to that fact. Paul and Barnabas then received the right hand of fellowship, which was much more than a friendly handshake. It was a symbolic gesture of the partnership in the gospel, a confirmation of the division of their labors and the endorsement of their mission to the Gentiles. The evangelization of the world depends upon this type of cooperation in the church. Rather than being prideful or isolationist, we should celebrate what God is doing through others. We can preach God's Word and serve God's people shoulder to shoulder with those from other denominations, provided that we are preaching the same gospel. This is ecumenism considered, rightly considered, and embraced. Anything else is to corrupt the gospel and lead people into bondage. 
Bondage may seem like a hard or exaggerated image to describe the state of those who attempt to add works to the gospel. But that is exactly how we experience it. And as Paul describes it in Romans 6, it is slavery, a slavery to sin which leads to death. And I would like to begin to close with a rather lengthy illustration of this bondage, which is actually a testimony that some of you are familiar with. A couple of years ago, a book was making the rounds entitled From Fear to Freedom. It is the story of Rose Marie Miller's journey out of that bondage and into the glorious liberty she found in Christ. And this is an edited portion of her testimony that she gave after the publication of her book. So I ask that you bear with me as I share this most apt testimony from Rose Marie Miller. If you had told me ten years ago that I would be writing an article on team ministry, I'd have laughed. Just keeping my marriage vows had been team ministry enough for me. My husband Jack is a pastor, church planner, seminary professor, and evangelist with almost limitless supply of energy. He says it comes from understanding the book of Galatians and building his life on justification by faith. My life's pattern generally veers toward the how-tos to the law and its duties. Given that combination, my feeling was, less, was the less team ministry I had with Jack, the better. Where he saw opportunities, I saw work and loads of it. I had good reasons to feel that way. We live in an ancient three-story house on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Once our teenagers left this large old home in the early 70s, Jack and I agreed to take in people who were in desperate need. This This was our teen ministry, taking in people like drug addicts, homosexuals, state hospital dropouts, and refugees from motorcycle gangs. We had some dramatic conversions during this time, and From this work sprang the seeds that blossomed into New Life Presbyterian Church of Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Jack's role in our ministry to these troubled people was to be the representative of grace. He gave the gospel to everyone in the house. I was the law, motherly but firm and resolute. It was needed. Some of these people were really burdened, and it took firm measures to keep them under control. During this time, I was a growing puzzle to my husband. He would tell me how gifted I was, how effective my work was becoming, with the result that it made me feel guilty. I really should say even more guilty, because there was a dark cloud over much of my life. Even seeing the beautiful conversions taking place in our home and the new lives developing did not give me much lasting joy. No matter how well things went for me, I always felt I should have done more. I could see countless flaws in the best things I did. In fact, my own private view of myself was that I could never do anything that was really worthwhile. I remember an experience back in the 60s which typified my attitude. Jack received annual invitations to speak at the Skis and Skeptics Evangelistic Weekends in the Pocono Mountains. Jack approached the events with typical enthusiasm, earnestly seeking to win every skeptic to Christ. Me, I loved the skiing, and at night slipped up to my room with my favorite Agatha Christie novel under my coat. 
While Jack fought for the lives of the skeptics downstairs in the lodge, I unraveled the mysteries of Agatha, snuggled under the covers. Only the skiing and Agatha made these weekends bearable. Actually, I used to pray that no money would come in so that I would not have to go. Nowhere in me could I find the wisdom and the compassion needed to reach out to these college students. I felt I didn't have anything to offer anyone. I felt as if I barely knew Christ as a real person myself. The more I thought about it, the more I was paralyzed. What to say, how to say it, when to say it. But then afterwards, did I say it right? But it was hard to get Jack to hear how I felt. I often complained to him, you don't listen. But all I gave him to listen to were problems of my own and those of the people we lived with. Worse yet, I expected Jack to act as my Holy Spirit and to solve these problems. Jack, for his part, didn't listen to the deeper struggles of my heart. The pressure built inside me until July 1978 when we vacationed in Tennessee, taking with us one of the troubled young people living in our home. One evening, walking by the lake, I blurted out, I feel like I am walking under a dark cloud. God seems far away, and I don't even know if I believe He exists. Up to this point, Jack usually had ready answers. But now, he was shocked into silence. As soon as we returned home, Jack handed me a copy of Martin Luther's argument to the book of Galatians, where I read, For in the righteousness of faith, we work nothing. We render nothing unto God, but we only receive and suffer another to work in us, that is to say, God. I was eager to hear about another righteousness for me. At that time, we had living with us a charming, cultured young person who continually evaded and resisted our efforts to get him to take responsibility in the home. I could forgive the living illustrations of Romans 1 that we had taken in before, but I couldn't forgive this fellow's expectations that we serve him hand and foot. I couldn't love him. I felt so guilty that I would have loved for another's righteousness to do it for me. But I didn't know what I had to do to get it. I kept reading Martin Luther. And a year later, during a conference in Switzerland, the Lord made it clear to me what I needed to do. Jack was speaking at a conference on family relationships. And one sunny day, I chose to go skiing. I chose a mountain that was way beyond my skill as a skier. Within 10 feet of the top, I fell and lost one ski. Although I could have turned around at the top and gone back down the gondola, I did not. For two hours, I slid and bumped and fell down that mountain. And when I got back to the hotel, weary and aching, I slid into a hot tub. I was very angry at God. Wasn't it His fault that I had made such a fool of myself? After all, he knew how high that mountain was. He could have kept me from going. But the Lord had something better to cover me with than all my ready excuses. Sunday morning during a communion service, Jack broke a large loaf of French bread to be passed around. In the crack of that bread, I suddenly saw Jesus broken for me. And finally, I understood what Luther was saying, that Jesus' righteousness covered all my unrighteousness. And what did I need to do to get it? 
just accept his work for me. As I sat there with tears streaming down my face and only one small Kleenex to stem the tide, I saw that trip down the mountain as a picture of my record of self-righteousness. I was struck by the obvious fact that I hadn't needed to go down the mountain the way I did. The other way was to enjoy a cup of tea on the mountaintop resort and go back down on the gondola, admitting that for me, the skiing down was an impossibility. I suddenly saw the past as so much self-effort that it produced good things, but could not deal with the failure or defeat. Now I understand that Christ's righteousness covered all of that. All of my excuses were gone, and I accepted Christ's perfect record as what I needed. All my self-righteousness made me a spiritual paralytic, but Christ's righteousness brought peace. God reached into my life and dealt with my fundamental sin. About a year later, we were invited to speak together at a church. What happened in Switzerland was still very real to me. But other than telling women about it, I had trouble seeing how it could help them. So I decided to teach them about women of the Bible. After I spoke, a young woman came up and said, I have to talk to you. As we sat talking in her home with her children playing under our feet, she confessed, I hate my husband. I hate my kids. I hate being a pastor's wife. Several years earlier, I would have told her how to discipline her, chi- her kids or how to submit to her husband, but the how-tos had never worked for me. They always seemed to involve me again in the vicious cycle of self-sufficiency, self-effort leading to failure and self-accusation. All I had for her now was what Jesus had done for her. You have to yield to the righteousness of Christ, I said. Is that all? She wanted to know. Yes, that is all. She knelt down to pray and and confessed that her life was filled with her own righteousness. That now she wanted Christ and she came off her knees different with a heart to love her husband, her children, and her work. She then told all the women in the church about the change, and they too wanted to know about how to be different. I told them the same truth, and they experienced a change too. I felt like a spectator to God's work. Here I was being the team member Jack wanted by just telling the women about Christ. She concludes her testimony with, The gospel has changed my expectations for us as a team. I no longer expect Jack to be the Holy Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit. I know I am already justified by grace. I am not constantly demanding Jack's approval and sponging off his emotional life. Now I can give love to him as well as receive. I don't expect Jack to be perfect. If he makes a mistake in our team ministry, I know that his sins as well as mine, are covered by the righteousness of Christ. I no longer expect to find any wisdom or compassion in myself. It is all in Jesus, and he has enough for everyone that I meet. And that is the end of her testimony that I share with you. I confessed, and I know that's a very long quote to include in a sermon, but I thought it a fitting illustration as we consider the bondage that false doctrine brings to our lives and how it can undo the liberty we are to have in Christ. 
If you read more of Rosemarie's story, you'll discover she was previously controlled by fear, which is just a manifestation of this bondage. One of the false teachers in her life was her perfectionist mother. What false teachers or false brethren are you listening to? Are you looking to a friend or a family member to be your Holy Spirit? It's such an easy trap to get ensnared by. Luther once again, the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God who by the will and command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for He has not lived up to His promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy, for by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. As Rose Marie learned, it is all in Jesus, and He has enough for everyone that I meet. And finally, isn't it wonderful to see that the unlimited power of the gospel can break through and speak so clearly in the simple act of the breaking of bread? And lives are set free from bondage unto sin and death and freed to joyful obedience unto God through the liberty we know only in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our most gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks and ascribe all glory and praise to you for your provision of the gospel. We're thankful for those who have fought and even died that your truth might be proclaimed generation after generation. We ask, therefore, that you would make us stubborn for the gospel and jealous to preserve and promote it in its full integrity. We pray that you would keep us from trusting in anything or any man for our eternal security and free us from bondage to sin, bondage to fear or anxiety, from bondage to pride or self-righteousness or anything it would undermine the liberty you have given to us in Christ. For it is in his all-sufficient name we pray. Amen.